is a good Father's Day. This is like a dream come true. I've got to play MC Hammer on Sunday morning. And now Michael Jackson. God is doing a work here. I can feel it. <laughs> Holy Spirit move. Uh, yeah, so fathers, happy Father's Day. Um, pumped that you're here. What you do is incredibly important. And thanks for being the kind of dad who's here on Father's Day. Uh, it's really cool. And if you're a fan of Michael Jackson, you're welcome. And if you're not, I'm just going to pray for you. And just know, you're never too lost. God can still save you. You need to know that. So why are we, why are we showing a, a thriller? Why are we watching Michael Jackson uh, on Sunday morning? We've been in this series called The Walking Dead. And in this series, uh, we've been asking a question. In fact, I came across an article Friday morning um, that actually steals some of our language uh, and kind of gets to this issue. It's in Relevant Magazine. Um, Totally stole our idea, that's okay. Uh, but the, the name of the article is this, is Behind Hollywood's Apocalyptic Obsession, Why the End of the World is Finding an Audience. It's being done in all sorts of genres nowadays. There's a dystopian sci-fi perspective, like Tom Cruise's recent overblown turn in Oblivion. It's a good example. Most recently with This is the End and Shaun of the Dead and the like, comedy has been derived from apocalyptic scenarios, which would never make us laugh if they actually happened. The Walking Dead's ever-growing popularity and the upcoming release of World War Z this week uh, display interest in what seems to be the most unlikely of end-time scenarios, death by the living dead. Lars von Trier's Melancholia, don't know if I'm saying that right, took a more artful and perhaps the most bleak track to describing the end of the world. There has even been an apocalyptic romantic comedy, Seeking a Friend for the End of the World. And let's not forget the greatest sign of the world's impending doom. Nicolas Cage will be starring in the reboot of the cinematic adaptation of the Left Behind series. The world is coming to an end. It is true. So the author starts looking at culture and maybe some of the reasons why we are fascinated with this whole end of the world talk. And then, at the end of the article, he says this. But you know, I think the zombie movies get it the best. Why the enduring popularity of these films? Why the resonance? I'd say a lot of it has to do with the fact that to some extent, many of us are walking around dead, zombified, empty. The end is nigh because it seems to already be here for a lot of us. We walk around accruing stuff in an attempt to introduce some vibrancy or color into our lives. When so much of the world already seems like a wasteland, like a desolate landscape peopled only by survivors and the walking dead. The end of the world may be so popular because it sometimes seems preferable to the doldrum apocalypse which seems to be happening in slow motion each and every day. Totally stole our idea. Relevant Magazine's got nothing on us. This is what we've been looking at. We've we've been asking this question, why in the world, when we open up the scriptures, we do see flawed people, broken people, but we see people who were just like all in who lived with this unquenchable fire, this passion for the Lord, who are willing to pay whatever price for Him. Right? And why is it when we look at human history, we see a lot of the same? We see men and women who are just willing, it's like, no matter what the cost, like, as long as I get Jesus to know Him more, to live for Him, I'm good. Right? Men and women who died. Right? Why is it we see that? Why even in creation? Right? Romans uh, I think 8 talks about this fact that, that all of creation is groaning and longing for Jesus to return and make it right. right why do we see that? Why do we then look around and, and what we often see are, are, are men and women who go to church and they're nice, good 
church boys and girls, but they don't long for God like that. Right? Their life is not characterized by that kind of passion, right? that kind of life, that kind of clarity of purpose. Right? Why are there so many people in churches that seem to be more walking dead than they are running free? Right? So this is the question we've been asking and seeking to answer in the series. Right? And so we introduced a few weeks ago this idea of story. And one of the things I suggested is that we don't understand the story uh, in which we find ourselves. And first of all, we looked at the characters in that story, and we looked specifically at Satan, um, which I think to many of us, perhaps still, uh, perhaps for much of our life, seems like a laughable character, right? We, we reject this idea of the devil. It insults our intelligence, I think oftentimes we feel. Right? So we pushed back on that. We talked about biblically who he is, what he does, how he works. Right? And if you missed that, it's on the podcast, and I really encourage you to give it a listen. Right? But this morning, what I want to do is I want to look at where this is all going. Right? If we are a part of a larger story that God is, is telling with creation, how does it end? Or where does it end up? What is God going to do with all this and with us? What does eternity look like? All right, so for, before we jump in, um, I grabbed one of these this week. Anybody play with these when you were a kid? Yeah, one of these. The Etch-a-Sketch, yes. I love this thing. I was all, always horrible at it, but I bought it this week, and I gave it to our girls, and like 10 minutes later, Chloe ran up to me. She was like, look, Dad, a staircase. I was like, that's all I could ever make, too. You know? <laughs> was there anybody here who can make something better? Like, you'd say, you know what, I'm a seasoned etch-sketcher. Uh, I can definitely beat a staircase. And you'd be willing to doodle while I teach for the next 20 minutes? Come on, some brave soul. If you get bored, I mean, this is an out right here. might not be as good as your smartphone. Awesome. Catch. No, just kidding. All right, just don't, don't destroy it. All right. I want to see it when you're done. All right, thanks. All right. <laughs> so I want to look at where this story is going. And here's why. All right, here's kind of the premise. It is, I would suggest that when you know where the story is going, it completely affects how you participate and engage in that story. Right? When you know the ending, it affects everything. It already does, whether you realize it or not. Right? So just imagine for a moment, you could step back in time, you had that ability, you were given the opportunity to go back and live in the year 1911. Right? And you had the opportunity to live for a year. And you could take in the sights and the, and the sounds, you could see what it looked like, perhaps in like New York City or L.A. in, in 1911. Right? Maybe you could work a job, probably in a factory. You know what I mean? But you had that opportunity. Right, but let's just say, after a while, you made good friends with some people that had some connections, and one of them came up to me and said, I have got the best birthday present for you, because you're such a good friend. And I don't know if you know this, but they have been constructing the largest ship ever made. And it is going to be departing and going across the Atlantic from the UK, and when we get to New York City, we're going to party like it's 1929. And I've got a ticket with your name on it. You in or what? Oh, by the way, the name of the ship is the Titanic. Are you in? Happy birthday. Right? What's your response going to be? Right? Unless you have a death wish. <laughs> it's going to be like, ah, uh, thanks, but no thanks. Right? Why? Because you know the ending of that story. It doesn't end well. Right? When you know the ending of, of the story, it affects everything. So if you were to find out this morning, for example, if God were to tell you the moment in which you would breathe your last breath, right? he, he, he would tell you that. You could see it exactly when, exactly how, you're going to die. And let's just say you find out that you're not going to live to a ripe old age and die 
at the exact same time as your spouse as you spooned in your sleep. Which, by the way, you're not going out like that. Hate to spoil the ending. But let's just say you found out that actually uh, you've only got a couple years to live. Or maybe much less. Maybe you've only got six months to live. You think that would affect the way that you're living right now? I would guess for many of us it would. If you just had six months to live, right, it would probably change everything. Right, why? It's because you would come to find out with the end of your particular story in this particular life where that was going. And when you know the ending, it affects everything. And so I would actually suggest what you believe about eternity already affects much of your life. How you understand what happens after this life already affects the way that you spend your money. It affects what you say yes to and what you say no to. It affects what relationships you deem worthy uh, of your investment. Or it affects where you spend the majority of your time. It affects your goals and your aspirations that you're pursuing. I mean, it affects uh, everything. And what I would suggest to you is because we are in the West and a part of the church, chances are good that many of us, if not most of us, have been led to believe things about eternity that are simply not true. And they're affecting our lives in ways that are very, very negative and counterproductive. And we have misunderstanding in this area. So one of the things that I did is I uh, did a Google image search of the end of the world to just see, at least artistically, what has captured our imagination when we picture the end of the world. So I got a few of these images. This basically represents pretty much everything I found. If you, ever, if you Google image search, end of the world. So lots of fire. All right, we'll keep going. Also lots of water. All right, that's not good. That's not going to end well. Ouch. All right, asteroids. Probably not going to end well. That's my favorite. <laughs> I like how Saturday is not even on there. <laughs> it's great. And then death by Domo. I don't know if that's a part of God's plan, but, but the big picture, and then I think there's one more, actually. Implosion of some sort, apparently. All right. And that basically sums up, at least artistically, what has captured our imagination when we think about the ends of the world. Right? And this is actually pretty re- representative of even if you just go through classic art throughout human history, right, is there are pictures of destruction. Right? Whether it be, some of them had giant tornadoes. Right? Whether it be that, or tsunami, or fire, or water, or death by domo, or a combination of the above. Right? The picture that many of us have been given and buy into is this idea that essentially this world where we are right now is going to meet its end, and that end is going to be violent. Right? It's going to be rough. It's going to be awful. This thing is going to be destroyed. Right? And it's not just pop culture. Right? Christianity, right? This, is, this is, I don't know about you, but this is what I was taught when I was growing up. Right? Anybody here, okay, this is going to take some courage. Anybody here read the Left Behind series or some of it? Anybody brave enough? Okay, okay, yep, yep, brave souls. Now, actually, it's, I mean, it's entertaining. If you, I mean, just the idea, there's a reason that we love apocalyptic movies, okay? Makes for a great story. I love zombie apocalyptic movies. I will confess that to you. All right, so I get it. It's an exciting stuff. Especially when it's painted through this lens of faith and being a Christian amidst it all. It's like, you know. But here's the thing, okay? It's fiction. All right, can we just acknowledge that together? It's fiction. The plot, not just the characters, the dialogue, the theology is really misleading. Right? Because the idea that's being peddled, and this is what I was taught growing up, and maybe if you grew up in church, you got this too. The idea is that this earth is going to hell in a breadbasket. 
Right? Given enough time, things are just going to get worse and worse and worse. Going to spiral out of control. God is going to unleash his wrath on this world. And finally, if we bide our time, our soul is going to escape to the sweet hereafter. Right? Going off to heaven, somewhere else, while the rest of the world is judged in this pretty violent way. Right? That is, I would say in Western Christianity, that is the overarching idea. And if you've been a part of a church for any period of time, especially if you grew up in the church, I bet, I bet most of us either heard it taught on, we've seen it depicted for sure. Chances are you've probably sung about it, this idea. Right? I'll fly away, oh glory, I'll fly away. When I die, hallelujah, by and by, I'll fly away. Right? This idea is that this is not our home, this is not where we're staying, and we're going to eventually take off. Our soul is going here. Our body is staying here. And what I want to suggest to you is that is so far off from what the scriptures actually teach. And when we view life through this lens, and when we view our faith through this lens, it is destructive. It is very, very negative. And it becomes a stumbling block to us living the life that God has created for us. What if, what if we are really off on this thing? when we think about what eternity with God is going to look like, what if heaven is a lot closer than you think? In fact, what if you actually know a lot more about heaven than you think? All right, so I want to open up the scriptures and look at, beginning with a prophet by the name of Isaiah. All right, and if you're new uh, to this whole kind of Bible study or church or whatever, right, a prophet was basically somebody who God would go to and say, I have this message that I want you to share with this people. I'm going to go do this thing. They need to know it or what have you. And he would send that prophet, that person, to go share that message. That's, that's it. All right, and one of the most famous prophets in the Bible is a guy by the name of Isaiah. And he was, he was famous for a couple different reasons. Part of it is just the sheer volume of prophecies that he churned out in his lifetime. All right, he was like the Stephen King of prophets. It's like, he's reading, writing another one? Well, really? Wow, okay, well, I'll buy it, you know. Um, that was essentially Isaiah. Like, he just churned out a lot. That's part of the reason he's so famous. Another reason is the fact that he just had this connection to Jesus. Right? And so if you read the book of Isaiah, and then you open up and you read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah possessed this ability to talk about things that were going to happen six, seven hundred years later when Jesus stepped onto the scene in his life and ministry in this uncanny, uh, amazing way. Right? And not only that, when Jesus does physically step on the scene, and when he begins his, his earthly ministry, right, out of all the things that he could have said, right, one of the first things out of his mouth, who does he quote? Right, but Isaiah. Right? So this is really important. Right? And, and one of the reasons I say all this is, is we are about to read uh, a prophecy from Isaiah. Right? What God revealed through Isaiah, we believe, through the scriptures, uh, about God's plan for this, for eternity. Right? So if you have a Bible... I'm going to Isaiah chapter 65, beginning in verse 17. And this is what it says. It says, See, behold, listen up, pay attention. I will create new heavens right, and a new earth. Right, so this phrase, uh, a new earth, a new heavens, right, this is this incorporating everything we know about the known universe, right, including earth. Right, and this is very important. And it's important because this isn't... Like, I'm pretty wary of, of preachers who will spend an hour talking about one verse, you know, that may or may have other ideas in the Bible that give more color to it, but they will exegete the crap out of that thing for an hour. 
But when there are things in the Bible that God just keeps seeming to keep bringing to the forefront and saying, hey, I don't want you to miss this. You need to see this. And it says it again and again and again. Well, then that strikes me as something that we need to really pay attention to because God doesn't want us to miss it. And this is one of those things. All right, so in the very next chapter, we find it is just to make sure we didn't miss it, uh, God says this again through Isaiah. It says, As the new heavens and the new earth that I make will endure before me, declares the Lord, so will your name and descendants endure. All right, then something interesting happens. All right, several hundred years go by, seven, eight hundred years. And another very um, influential biblical character steps on the scene named Peter. All right, Peter was a follower of Christ. He was a disciple. He was an apostle. Uh, he wrote at least a couple of the books of the Bible. And he brings this up again. And he points back to this. And this is what he says in 2 Peter 3.13. Right? But in keeping with his promise, right? God's promise, what promise is that? But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to, and here's that phrase again, a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. All right, this, is, this is huge. All right, because for most of us, this represents a monumental shift in how we think about eternity. Right? And how we understand heaven. All right? And so when you think about if you're a follower of Christ and you think about heaven and you think about eternity in God, what you should not do is conjure up religious imagery that maybe has been handed down to you through felt boards in Sunday school class. Especially if they involve robes and harps and clouds. Right? You just need to reject those outright. Right? You're not going to be mopping with Morgan Freeman for eternity. Right? That is not what God's promise is. In fact, it's very, very different. In fact, if you want to get a clearer picture of what eternity with God is going to be like, right, you need to throw that stuff out and just walk outside these doors and open up your eyes and drink it in. The colors, the smells, all five senses. Because that's going to be a lot clearer picture of what eternity with God is going to look like compared to some of that other stuff that is so popular. Right, it's very, very different. And it's a, it's a glimpse. Right, but it's, it's a glimpse all the same, right? So if you walk out there and you just imagine with me, if you will, what this earth would be like if it was stripped of sin and its effects. Or imagine this world with no cancer, right? no leukemia, no AIDS, right? no suffering, no human trafficking, no poverty, no starvation, no death, no hatred. Or you imagine that, and that is, you're, you're on the right track. Right, that is a much clearer picture of what eternity with God is going to be like. Right, imagine, if you will, just for example, like, have you ever been in one of those moments where it just seemed like it was just a beautiful, surreal moment where all was right, at least in your world. All right, and you're with other people, and things were right here, and you're in creation. It's just this beautiful moment that you wish would never end. All right, so one of my favorite places on this green earth is my back deck. And we live on a, in a little house, but for some reason, somebody built a huge deck on this teeny little house. And I love it. And one of my favorite things in the world is to be sitting on that back deck in the screened-in area on it when a thunderstorm rolls in with a bottle of wine and good friends, telling stories and drinking in the sights and the smells and laughing together. Right? And in my mind, it doesn't get any better than that. When we are right here, Right, or right here, at least in my small little world. Right, if you imagine, whatever that is for you, right, what you're getting is a glimpse. 
Right? That is a glimpse of eternity, of God's picture, the Bible's picture of what eternity will be like. And yeah, it's just a glimpse. Right? But it's a glimpse all the same. It's not floaty, it's not fuzzy, it's clear. You can taste it, you can smell it, you can hear it, you can feel it. It's not this ethereal, cloudy, soul-escaping thing. It's very, very different. Or this phrase, new earth, is very interesting because it comes up over and over and over in the scriptures. Or in the last place it surfaces is in the very last book of the Bible, Revelation. And this is what it says, Revelation 21, beginning in verse 1 through verse 5. It says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There it is again. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And there was no longer any sea. Sea is often used in the Bible, by the way, to, to symbolize evil, chaos. There's no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and He will dwell with them. They will be His people and God Himself will be with them and be their God. And I love this. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things had passed away. He who is seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Right, the New Testament uses two words when it's talking about new and new earth. Right, neos and kainos. Right, neos is starting something brand new. It's creating from scratch. And so when we read the creation story in Genesis, and God is, is weaving together this amazing tapestry that we know as the cosmos, the heavens, the earth, everything in it, right, that would be neos. Right? But this, in this passage, and others like it, when it's talking about new earth, it doesn't use that word. Or he uses the word kainos. Right, you know what kainos means? Kainos means renewed. It means restored. It means redeemed. Right, it means refinished. Very, very different from scrapping everything and starting over. Completely different. So when we talk about, we've got to understand, when we talk about heaven, when we talk about eternity with God, that is not some distant, far-off place where we fly to, apparently, when Jesus finally rescues us from this earth. It's here. It's here. For those of us who are in Christ, we're going to spend eternity here. Right, this is one of the reasons that the Bible talks so much about resurrection. Right, it talks about physical resurrection. So the New Testament writers, the epistles, the New Testament, what it is bearing witness to is talking about Jesus' resurrection. It's the reason it uses that word over and over and over. What is it saying? It's not talking about this ethereal soul way that Jesus was raised from the dead in the spiritual, ethereal, we can feel your presence kind of way. What they were saying is he physically rose from the dead. We saw it, we embraced him, we hugged him, we shared wine, we shared bread, we told stories. He was there physically. And it says the same about us. Right? Not that someday Jesus will come and we'll, our spirit will be whisked away, but that we will be resurrected, that a day is coming, those of us who are in Christ, that we will physically stand up. And we'll be giving a new body, a restored body, a redeemed body, but our body, flesh and blood. Very, very different. Monumental uh, shift from what many of us have been led to believe. It's huge. Right? Because it, within Christianity, I mean, there's just been this, this idea seeping in 
right? That, that, that God's like doing this evacuation project. You know, you just got to kind of put in your time. Like this is, I think that's why like purgatory is so fascinating. It's not biblical, right? But I think most of us feel like we're there, right? This in-between phase, right? That's, that's how it's often framed, this earth, this life, this reality. But that's not the biblical framing. It's not an evacuation project. God is not doing an evacuation project. He's doing a restoration project, right? That's very, very different. And it affects, it absolutely affects everything, right? And so I'm, I'm embarrassed to admit this, right? But I was raised to believe in this kind of whole evacuation project. The world is evil, heaven is good. Body bad, soul good, right? I was raised to believe that. So I can actually remember when I was a kid, I'm just embarrassed to even say this. But when I was a kid, I remember hanging out with some friends and we were doing something. And I remember tossing some garbage on the ground. But one of my friends totally called me on it. It's like, dude, pick that up. Don't litter. You know, and like the rebellious part of me was like, oh, I'm definitely leaving it there now, you know. Um, But I can remember responding to my friend and saying, dude, it's all going to burn anyway. Right? Yeah. Don't stone me, right? But it's like, I'm I'm embarrassed to say that. And here's the thing. If it was just me, you could all judge me and walk out of here, minimal damage. But it's not just me, and that's the problem. Right? This has become the overarching popular idea within Christian literature, Christian music, and a lot of Christian theology, whether it's spoken or not. But it's not, it's not biblical. In fact, what I didn't realize is this idea is not new at all. Right, this is called dualism. We got it from Plato. Right, it's a Greek idea. And surface, the way that it's, what it's called, it's Gnosticism is what it is. This idea that the earth is bad and heaven is good, the flesh is bad, the soul is good, Right? And so we are on this evacuation project. Get us out of here, God, as soon as possible. Lord, return so I can escape this God-forsaken rock called Earth. That's Gnosticism. And the way that the movement of Jesus responded to Gnosticism historically is they opened up the Bible and they said, whoa, 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 whoa. You missed it. You missed the gospel. That's heresy. Right? If you remember, John 3.16, most famous verse in the Bible, arguably, and it should be, right? succinctly communicates the heartbeat of the Christian message. Right? For God so loved what? The world. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. But the very next verse, right? for God did not send his son to condemn the world, but to save the world. through him. We need to remember the way the story began in Genesis, God creates the heavens and the earth. And as he creates, what does he say over and over and over again? It is good. It is good. It is good. God did not change his mind somewhere along the way. The God who the scriptures say is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we got to get this. God is not on an evacuation project. This earth is not an evacuation project. You are not an evacuation project. But this is a restoration project. It's huge. It requires a big shift. All right, so can I get that Etch-a-Sketch back? Are you happy with your work? Yeah? The bar was set pretty high for a service. It was like Mario and this whole world. All right, what do we got here? Are you serious? You went all spiritual on me. Jesus and Satan. First service, it was Mario and Luigi. So, you know, this is, this is good. 
All right. So you've been working on that, sketching around on and off, 20 minutes-ish. Right. What we need to do is reject the overarching biblical idea that what God is essentially going to do with this world, which he has deemed good, and with you, which he has deemed good, and he's going to go all etch-a-sketch on it. So I apologize for your work. If you didn't get a photo and you want to, I, I just apologize ahead of time. Okay. Right. Here, we need to reject this idea that this is what God is going to do at the end of this story. Well, that didn't work, right? It just starts over. Just destroys it all. Burns it up. It's gone. Well, let's try this again, right? That is not the biblical story. That is not what the Bible teaches at all. We need to throw away this. God is not going etch a sketch on this world. Or you, for that matter. All right, this is not going to be a perfect illustration, but it's a better one. Right, it's far better for us to think about creation in terms of this. Right, now, is this perfect? No. But is there good here? Yes. Right, and the, what the Bible says is when Jesus returns, right, he's not going to just chuck it. What he's going to do is that he's going to come back and there are going to be things that he leaves. Right, things that are good and true and beautiful. And then there's going to be other things that he steps in and he changes, right? And so there's going to be some pruning to creation. There's going to be some things that need to be altered. And then there are going to be things that he is going to abolish altogether. Right? And what it means to be a follower of Jesus right, is to participate in this. Right? We live in this anticipation of what God is going to do in eternity. And what we need to realize is that eternity starts now. Right? And so as participants, as redemptive agents in this world, what we do is like we, just, we come in as Jesus will. So Jesus will come, and what he's going to do is he's going to strip out. He's going to abolish some things. And so he's going to strip out all the weeds, sin, death, poverty, injustice, human trafficking, hatred, evil, all of it, he's going to rip it out. Or he's, going to, he's going to put his hands into the elements and clear away all those things that impend growth, that, that get in the way of experiencing true life, real life, all those things that don't bring him glory. Right, but then there's going to be things that he keeps, things that are true and beautiful and good. And so now, as followers of Jesus, what this means is there are things in this life that are meant to be experienced. That are meant to be drunk in fully. That are meant to be celebrated. Not in this dualistic, well, it's all evil, it's all wrong, God's going to etch-a-sketch this thing. But saying, no, God affirmed this is good, this is good. And so what we do is we participate with Jesus. And the things that he is going to leave, those things that are true and good and beautiful... We celebrate those things. We embrace those things. We belong to this world in that way. Those things that God is going to change, that Jesus is going to actively change in this world, those things that are off and wrong, we, to the best of our ability, act as participants to step in and to prune and to trim and to change and transform. Right? And then those things that are going to be abolished, we, to the best of our ability, participate with him now to work towards the abolishing of those things that grieve the heart of God. Right? But to do that requires that we throw out this etch-a-sketch mentality and then we choose to actually belong. Now, there are some huge implications to this. First of all, what it means is that who you are becoming is of eternal importance. Right? What it means is when Jesus returns, he's not just dumping the pot and starting over and we're all the same and you're all good. All of your sin is covered, but the seed is planted. Right? In fact, it, the, the life cycle of the seed is very well underway. The trajectory of this life 
right, is well underway. You don't just start over. Right? This is why 2 Corinthians 5 talks about coming before Jesus and giving an account for our life and being rewarded and punished by the way that we live, even though our sins are covered. Right? We don't just like all go and start over and it's like the same thing for everybody. It's a continuation. Eternity starts right now. What it also means is that what you do in this life has eternal implications. Right? What you do today, what you do this week, what you do in 2013, it's going to continue on. Right? There are going to be things that God celebrates and multiplies and continues in eternity. It starts now. Right, so N.T. Wright has a great quote, and he says it very, very well. This is what he says. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a future in store for it. And if this applies to ethics, as in 1 Corinthians 6, it certainly also applies to the various vocations to which God's people are called. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building, hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simple ways of making the present life a little less beastly or a little more bearable until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are a part of of what we call building for God's kingdom. So as Christians, the idea is that we are not month-to-month renters in this dilapidated apartment called Earth. But rather, we are heirs to this magnificent estate Right? And God has called us to be a part of cultivating it and transforming it and renewing it and changing it, participating and belonging as agents of redemption. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end here with, with reading a poem uh, by a, a pastor, author, by the name of Brian Zahn. And uh, it's called Belong, Antidote for Gnosticism. And I love it. It says this. And compare this, by the way, to that evacuation mentality we just need to toss out. It says, let Christ inform all of life. Do not be a religious cliche. Be a real human being. Belong to the human race. Belong to the woods. Belong to the city. Go for long walks. Learn to appreciate art. Take up the violin. Cultivate culinary skills. Read War and Peace. I haven't read that disclaimer. But laugh more than you do. Weep now and then. Listen to live jazz. Pray. Eat a peach. Do something ridiculous. Go dancing. Stop judging. Start loving. Plant a garden. Climb a mountain. Memorize a long poem. Learn some astronomy. Become a beekeeper. Go back to college. Take up a new hobby. Make some new friends. Read the Bible in a new translation. Get rid of bumper stickers. Learn a foreign language. Watch a foreign film. Change your mind. Drink only good coffee. Can I get an amen? Trust the sommelier, the wine connoisseur. Talk to your neighbor, not about religion. Go to church. Go to the circus. Don't confuse them. Be human. Belong. There's work to be done. There is life to be lived. You and I are not just passing through. Eternity starts now. Right, and we are invited to participate and to experience it fully. Now, that being said, uh, I would not be a good pastor if I didn't also point this out. Right, when we're talking about this picture of eternity, 
this is a very different experience. This is what I'm describing here. Um, it's for those who, are, who respond to what God is doing here and now. And not necessarily for everybody. And one of the hard claims of the Christian message and of the scriptures is that while this is available to everybody, not everybody will embrace it and accept it. All right, so in eternity, the truth is, I want so desperately for every single one of you to be there. All right, I don't get a lot of time with every single one of you, but I want to build a deck on your house and sit there and enjoy wine together and tell stories and worship God and participate in his creation and recreation for eternity with you. But the truth of the scriptures is that God doesn't force himself on anybody. What he does is he opens up his arms for anybody. But if we reject, I mean, if we insist on distancing ourselves from God in this life, in the next, in eternity, he just gives us what we want or what we've insisted upon up until that time. He He doesn't force himself on anyone It's just an invitation. And the truth is, we have to respond. Say, God is doing something here. Right? And He has opened up this opportunity to know Him, to love Him, to experience life, and as Jesus said, life to the full. Alright, but it's it's gotta be accepted, it's gotta be embraced. That's your choice, and nobody can make that for you. Right? And so this morning, as we close in prayer. And if you're at a point in your life where you would say, you know what? I've never crossed that line of faith. I've never embraced this message. Right? That recreation you're talking about, it hasn't happened or begun in here. But you find yourself at a point in your life where you're ready to take that step, as scary as it may be. Uh, that I'm going to lead you in a prayer that you can choose to pray. Right? And the truth is, the words of the prayer aren't the important part. The important part is your heart and the surrender of it to your Creator. So that being said, let's close together in prayer. And if you want to pray this prayer and enter into this life, this eternity, as God's adopted son or daughter, and then just repeat with me this prayer. Lord God, I surrender. I recognize the own the brokenness in my own heart and admit that I can't fix that on my own. And so I ask for you to do a work here. For you to forgive and fix that which is broken inside of me. And while I might not know exactly what this is going to entail, I trust my life into your hands. And I ask that you would start a restoration project in me and through me. Lord God, I pray for us as a community. God, that we would be the kind of people who would throw away this evacuation mentality, this idea that you're just going to go all etch a sketch on what you've created and deemed good. But God, that you would give us the courage to allow you to do that restoration project in our hearts to make us into the men and the women that you've created us to be. And Lord God, that you begin to use us as agents of change as we belong to this world as your sons and daughters. 
God, do a work in us. We give you the little that we have, and we pray these things in your name.